welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host Mono here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. We are rapidly approaching Hanami season in Japan. I've been in Tokyo for several years now, so I always worry that I've hit up the best Sakura Blossom spots in the city already. But really, if you just go to the same spot every year, it's still a great time. The Sakura Blossoms haven't bloomed yet, though, so it's totally okay if you just stay inside and play some games. And I'm talking about a lot of very different ones on this episode. In the feature, I'm joined by Naoya Shinota to talk about the Final Fantasy VII feature phone games. These are titles released exclusively in Japan for cell phones, and we dig into their history, their legacy, and the ongoing preservation project. Plus, in the games, I talk about the GBA's Super Mario Bros. 3 e-reader levels, and give my final thoughts on Fire Emblem Engage. Then I'll close out with the news and talk for two hours about rare in-game sleep styles. Let's jump right into the feature on Final Fantasy VII feature phone games with Naoya Shinoda. Tokyo Game Life only available on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. A while back, I featured the Rock Band feature phone titles. Well, we are back in the world of feature phones, and this time we are exploring the exclusive Final Fantasy VII titles for the hardware. They're not exactly easy to play today, but fortunately, our guest is trying to make it a possibility. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Nalia Shinoda. I am involved in preserving the Before Crisis Final Fantasy VII cell phone game, as well as the Dirge of Kerberos Lost Episode cell phone game. Thanks for joining me today. Just in case someone listening to this didn't check out the past feature phone episode, let's run it down again. What are feature phones? Feature phone is a term used in Japan to describe the type of cell phones they used in Japan back before smartphones. These were flip phones with hardware a little bit more unique and different than what was released overseas. And these feature phones, they may look inferior to some other phones, but their hardware capability was slightly more different or much better than some uh, overseas phones. Many high-profile franchises have games on feature phone hardware. When it comes to Japanese franchises, Final Fantasy is easily one of the most popular and prestigious. Why did Square dedicate so much effort into bringing original software to phones in Japan in the mid to late 2000s? Square Enix wanted to bring in new and old gamers into this, and they wanted to bring games such as Final Fantasies 1 and 2 and other games to the mobile world. And also because iMode, one of the companies out out there in Japan, iMode was doing really well, Mm -hmm. and they decided to port their games to that because they saw it as a good marketing system. Let's talk about the games. What were the Final Fantasy VII feature phone titles? For Final Fantasy VII, the first one is Before Crisis Final Fantasy VII, a real-time action RPG game. The next one is Dirge of Kerberos Lost Episode. This takes place before the events of Dirge of Kerberos, and you get to play as Vincent Valentine. The third one is Final Fantasy VII Snowboarding, which is basically a cell phone port of the snowboarding minigame from Final Fantasy VII. How did you first discover these games, and what drove you to want to preserve them? I found out about 
before Crisis 557 around in 2008, but I didn't really understand that it was a cell phone game, much less, you know, a Japanese cell phone game. And I didn't really find out about it until around 2021, I believe. And I started investigating, looking into it, as I just had bought Cloud's cell phone, the P900 IV, and then I did some research on the game because Remake was on the hype train. And I was thinking to myself, what about Before Crisis? I'm able to play a lot of games, but I still don't know about Before Crisis. And then that's when I stumbled upon the FF7 mobile game initiative on the live stream that a user by the name of Shadem started to begin the search for this game. And after doing a lot of research, I wanted to help find the game and make it playable so that everyone can have a chance to play this game. Out of all the Final Fantasy VII smartphone games, to me, the big one is Before Crisis Final Fantasy VII. I think this is maybe the most notable feature phone game out of all of them. I mean, it has an English Wikipedia page, and it was probably the first feature phone game I heard of as a big Final Fantasy VII fan. And that amazing Nomura art of all the Turks was too hard to ignore. What exactly is Before Crisis, and how is it important to the Final Fantasy VII universe? So Before Crisis, it takes place six years before the events of Final Fantasy VII. You get to play as the Turks who work for Shinra, and you get to fight Avalanche, as well as you get to meet familiar characters from Final Fantasy VII, such as Zack, Cloud, Tifa, Aerith, Barrett, and such. Before Crisis is filled with a lot of gameplay elements not seen in other Final Fantasy VII titles. Can you give us a rundown on how it plays and some of its unique features? Sure. So unlike the other Final Fantasy VII games where you have characters such as like Cloud, Tifa, Vincent, Barrett, or even Zack, with Before Crisis, it was more of a choose-your-own-character, or in this case, choose-your-own-Turk, and then choose that name. These Turks, they either have different weapons different battle speeds, such as either they run fast or they run slow, and they just had different stats and abilities that did change the gameplay, you know, here and there. Another concept is the story mode. So so there are three modes for each chapter. And Before Crisis, they have 24 chapters that involve the story of Before Crisis. And then there's also some special episodes, such as episode Reno and Legend. But for chapters 1 through 24... There's chapter mission where you get to enjoy the story of the before crisis and you get to enjoy the scenarios while fighting avalanche or other people in the in the game. Then there's free mode is where you actually get to roam around the map, the city of that chapter. So, for example, in chapter one, you are in sector eight, you're a Turk and you are starting out for the very first time. And this is where you encounter Avalanche. In free mode, you actually get to explore it a little bit more. You get to go here and there. They actually had NPCs for, for a Java game, which is actually really interesting. Mm. They also have enemies that you can run into and encounter and fight them. And I was actually able to dig up and discover guides, like, you know, like those cheat code websites with guides on what free mode was like for Before Crisis as we know that it exists, 
but we have no idea what what it really looks like. But mm. we do have the maps and guides and info and this and that. And then there's rescue mission. So in the game, when you're fighting someone, if you die, you have two options. One, you could spend uh, rank points to revive yourself, or you can not spend rank points, but you need to wait. You get captured by Avalanche, and then you need to wait for someone out there to go and rescue you. You can either have your friend go rescue you, or you can have someone else rescue you. And by rescuing a, a Turk member, you're actually not only gaining extra EXP and AP for leveling up, you also get extra rank points and even more additional dialogue here and there. Rescue is still to this day not been archived. Even I'm having problems finding info on this subject. It seems like unlike the Rockman games, which were very faithful to the GBA titles and the Mega Man Legends games, Square really did something really unique using the feature phone assets here. Yeah, there's actually uh, some instances where maps from Final Fantasy VII are actually carried to Before Crisis, but there are some that have unique art style. Before Crisis had multiple releases on different phones. The original release was in 2004 on FOMA, with a later release in 2007 for SoftBank and EasyWeb. Why were there multiple releases, and how are these different from each other? From what I imagine and from what I remember reading is that Before Crisis was doing what seemed to be doing well if it were to move from Dokomozaimo to AU's uh, Easy Apply Brew and Yahoo Keitai SoftBank games. And I know that during that time they were also planning for a overseas release. Oh, and now in terms of differences, so not much information is mentioned online about Before Crisis, other than what was used to make and program Before Crisis. Dokomo iMode used their own version of Java. Dokomo Java, which is Doja. Easy Apply used Brew, which was, that's where C or C++ is used. Yahoo Keitai SoftBank used MIDP 2.0, which is what Western phones run. MIDP 2.0 or 2.1. Depending on the Western phone. The Dokomo, AU, and SoftBank. You'll notice that there are two different Turks in each of the logo. A, hmm. So in the AU and SoftBank version, they actually at first included special Turks that were not previously in the Dokomo version of Before Crisis. However, footage from YouTube does show that eventually over time, the Turks that were only available to the SoftBank or AU version eventually did get get carried over to Dokomo and possibly the AU version. Eventually, what was exclusive back then became made available for all carriers. Square seems to at least be acknowledging Before Crisis in some way. They are remaking some elements of the game for Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis, another mobile game that is reimagining elements from the greater Final Fantasy VII story. And anecdotally, when I went to the Square Enix Cafe in Tokyo a few months ago, it had a Final Fantasy VII theme and the Before Crisis art was displayed. Do you think Square will ever make an effort into either porting the original Before Crisis or maybe even making a remake? I would say I think they are looking into it because over the years, people do actually ask Hajime Tabata or 
just anyone involved with uh, Final Fantasy VII always asking if they're ever going to bring it back or if they're ever going to remake it. And I have seen it shift from, well, it's a mobile game to, and now the response is, oh, well, we don't know if overseas fans would want it or not. Which I'm thinking, yes, we do. (laughs) I think they do. The failure of First Soldier was due to them expecting that they think they could get away with the whole mobile loot box, gacha-like system. But Crisis Core Reunion came by despite being a game that was not gacha, but a game focused more on story as the series has been focused on the theme of life. Crisis Core Reunion, at least from what I've been seeing, has been doing really well. Everyone's been very happy with it. Of course, there's always some people who are not happy with it, but then again, you can't please everyone. Before Crisis, it's possible. Like I'm seeing a whole bunch of games, like a lot of games that are just these old 2D pixel art sprite games. And I don't believe it's a matter of, oh, well, it's old. It's a matter of, is Square Enix willing to do it? And also why they would do it. Crisis Core Reunion, there's a bit of a reason there. Like Zack, and he has a bit of a connection to Remake and Rebirth. But for Before Crisis, as far as I know, there would have to be something included in Rebirth for them to say, okay, we're going to put Before Crisis onto modern consoles, which I do hope you know happens soon. Another feature phone game is Dirge of Cerebus Lost Episode. What's so special about this title? This one was a third-person shooter game. You play it as Vincent Valentine, and you can actually go from third-person running around as Vincent and then switch to first person. But there were many aspects from Dirge of Kerberos that were carried over into the game, as well as this was actually one of the first, at least to my knowledge, the first game to include voiceover cutscenes. There is actually a voiceover version of Dirge of Kerberos Lost Episode. They actually do have the voices from the actual people who voiced Vincent, Lucretia, and other characters in Dirge of Kerberos. And... I know a Japanese version obviously does exist. Supposedly a Western version voice version does exist. What about the snowboarding game? Is it just like a port of the snowboarding mini game from the PS1 version into the phone? Or is it something completely original? I actually found a recording of the Western version of Final Fantasy VII snowboarding for when they released it for the Verizon or LG phones. And I asked the person on YouTube, I said, is this actually footage from the snowboarding game? And he said, yes, this is. This was on my old Verizon phone. I forget which one it is. But basically, yeah, from what it looks like, yes, I could be wrong. Someone did write a guide on this game. And this was also one of the other few Final Fantasy VII mobile games that actually did get released overseas. Why are feature phone titles so difficult to preserve in the first place? Is the issue the rarity of the hardware carrying these titles? From my experience, it begins with one, does the person still have the game? As when a game goes out of service, it may or may not become playable. As I have been seen slowly on Twitter as more and more people are saying, oh, I have this game and I have that game. Someone revealed to me who has Dirge Kerber's Lost Episode to this day on their Japanese cell phone oh, wow. is that they're not, yeah, they're not able to start it. However, there is a trick to bypass. What it does is it checks for, I think it checks for a license or check the internet first or something. Someone on Twitter went into this, but 
since it's not possible for me to, to do iMode stuff here in my area, I'm not able to help sadly or contribute. So that's the first factor is, does the person have it? Okay, so if the person does have it, the next step is the hardware. So as we have seen, many, many Pokemon stuff got archived that technically should never have been archived, according to Nintendo and everything else. Mm. And and the reason why this happened is because there was a lot of overseas Western stuff that were handling it. And people from Western overseas have a bit of a more, you know, mindset of, well, you know, since you want to destroy this game just because you want to destroy this product, I'm going to go preserve it. The overseas has a bit more loose rules on what we view on what piracy is and what preservation is. Japan seems to view it as more of a, well, since this game is not being sold on any market at all, but there's no way for me to legally purchase it, if the store is not providing it, regardless, if you download it or whatever, it's still considered piracy. So there's also a, there's also the, the view of, you know, whether or not this is considered piracy to people in Japan. Also, it's the hardware. So the hardware is unique. An interesting feature of Before Crisis is that you can take a photo of ah. your, you can take a photo with your phone, and then based on the color of the photo, you get a specific materia. How can something like this be translated onto different hardware? I've actually put that into consideration. Nomura has stated that Final Fantasy VII Before Crisis is a mobile game, and it should stay as that. Hmm. So. If these games were to be put onto iPhone and Android, then I then then Android and iOS would just use the camera feature. Right. If it were, but if we were to to get it on a Switch, I would say the two possible ways are one: you would make a special camera accessory for the Switch. To my knowledge, I don't think the Switch has a camera. No, it, it does not. The second one is that you would take away the camera feature, but I would say some type of photo analyzing feature, or at least something that can analyze a picture or something. Some type of photo analyzing software can be implemented. There are ways, but it just depends on how Square Enix feels about it. Because when they were looking at the development of Before Crisis for Overseas, they even stated that they were having immense troubles with developing for Western phones. And they said they had to water down before crisis a lot. And they were not comfortable with spitting out a very watered down version of before crisis. And if you've seen what before crisis looks like, it's already watered down as it is. Mm. I mean, it looks great, but it's still watered down compared to what Final Fantasy VII offers. What kind of progress has been made thus far in terms of preserving these feature phone games? When the W51H, the, the cell phone that comes pre-installed with a Before Crisis demo, was acquired, first we had to look into how to dump the game. So unlike the Western phones, Japan took a very immense and very heavy consideration of the DRM, as in they put a lot of DRM on it, mm. on a Japanese cell phone. So such as removing the SIM card will disable every single purchase slash downloaded content on the Japanese cell phone. So if you downloaded anything from iMode for free, or if you purchased it, and then you remove the SIM card and try to play that, 
it will be disabled until you reinsert that SIM card. Whereas it over here in with a Western like a Motorola Razor V2 V3, you just need a SIM card to get to the phone. But still though, they really did limit it to the SIM card, as in you have to have the IMO contract, the AU's contract, or SoftBank's contract. SoftBank is the worst. It is by far the worst. Because with the Docomo and AU phones, you can still play the demos. But with SoftBank, even with demos on there, you have to have a 3G connection. Is your goal to throw a ROM out there on the internet of the game for people to play? Or do you also plan on localizing it? Or what are some other goals you have in mind? Originally, I wanted to help with the the Mobile Dave initiative because I remember how many people have just made it accessible and playable for me to play many things that I cannot access anymore. And as I was playing, the, the feeling I got for when I turned on the W51H and for the first time ever, I saw a brand new Final Fantasy VII game right before my eyes, a game that we were actually told that we were going to get. You know, playing the music and everything, just the experience. I thought to myself, this is such a cool game. But the fact that only I can play it, that's just not right. Others need to experience this game. And not just the, oh yeah, this game looks cool, look at me playing it. Nah, everyone else needs to play this game. Despite its graphics, despite the limitations it may have, it is still a game that nobody should have missed out on. Second is to localize it and make it in a way so that if you are someone who would want to play Before Crisis in Spanish, French, or whatever language you are more comfortable with, I am hoping to one day help make that possible because you know you should be able to play in, in a language you prefer. What's the best way for others to get involved? Are you looking for programmers or should somebody get on the horn with the Video Game History Foundation or what? Personally, at this point, anyone who wants to help, if anyone who has knowledge on hardware hacking or or chip debugging or just anyone who has had experience with reverse engineering can really do a lot of help. And to answer your question, anyone out there, yes, we have an emulator that can play before crisis. So if you do help work towards dumping the game, you're not just dumping some file that we can look at and say, oh, look, it's pretty. We do have a brew phones with tutorials on how to get brew games on there. So you could actually play before crisis on that phone. And, and then if you don't have those brew phones, we do actually have a emulator for brew called Melange and it works on Android. Sorry for the iOS users, but that's just the way it is. So basically there is a way to play before crisis. We don't have anyone helping us at the current moment, but we do welcome anyone who wants to come and help. All help is welcomed. Digital games are more popular than ever, and mobile gaming is still a huge industry that relies entirely on digital software. There are Final Fantasy games available on mobile now, and there have been games that are now unavailable, such as G-Bike and The First Soldier. What can uh, people do to prevent modern digital games from being lost? The best I would suggest is one, when it comes to gacha games, skins, or any of these things, do not buy it. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and if you go up to Square Ant and, and at them and say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing gacha games, you should be focusing on other games like Parasite Eve Remake or, or Final Fantasy IX Remake, they're not going to listen. But what they will listen to is lack of money. Mm. And I personally just recommend don't support gacha games. Don't support gacha games, but at the same time, 
tell Square Enix and say, we don't want gadget games. We want full games. We want this. You got to both tell them. You also got to demonstrate in your actions what you do and don't want. Because with First Soldier, some of the content, the purchase content, or nearly all of it, I think, wasn't able to transfer over to a new account or a new device. And that's just that's just wrong because the money you spend should not be uh, to something perishable like that. You should be able to, at least to some extent, take that game and to be able to play it whenever you want, not when the company feels like it. And then the, the next recommendation I would have, and this is a bit of a, it depends where you stand on this, I would say learn how to download the data, like how to intercept data and download it. If Square hmm. Enix is going to pull this type of stuff where the only way for me to understand what happened in the compilation of Final Fantasy VII is if I just happened to be born in 2021 where I have enough money for this game, that's just not right because I'd imagine there are many people who are much younger than I am who want to play these games, but they're just not able to get you know the top-of-the-line iPhone or Android phone because of just many factors that you know a kid or teen has when they're in a family because i think we could all relate to that that moment in our life where we've told mom and dad grandpa or grandma or whoever that we want to buy this game but they say oh no you can't we could go on ebay or amazon we could buy final fantasy 7 the ps1 version but we can't go back and buy g bike we could download hmm. the shell the, the shell exists out there but we can't download it. We can only watch footage of it. I know G-Bike is different from First Soldier, but I've seen many great games that were mobile only that want to play it. And then you get into it and you grow a love for it. We don't get to control when we get interested in something. And that's another factor as well. Well, Naya, thanks for joining me to chat about the Final Fantasy VII feature phone titles. Where can people find you? I am on various websites such as the live stream. I'm in the Copy Break Discord. That is a Discord dedicated to discussing about feature phone games, not just Japanese feature phone games, but also as well as China, Korea, cell phone games as well. I am on the live stream website as well as on Twitter as Naoya Shinoda, N A. O-Y-A-S-H-I-N-O-T-A. And if you just ever want to, if you ever want to talk about Before Crisis or cell phone feature phone game preservation, you're more than welcome to ask me on what you think might help. I am more than welcome to encourage as any way possible. I do want to help. And I want you to be able to help if you feel like helping too. Great. And listeners, the links to everything are in the podcast description. Naya Shinoda, once again, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on. Before we get into games, check out this show from the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. And we're back with another great episode of... Hold your horses, mister. This is a commercial for our show, Nasty Lamps. Uh, not the actual show. You mean to tell me, this is a commercial for our bi-weekly show from Game Studio Chuhai Labs, where we talk about games, game dev, Japan, and whatever else comes up? Yep, and it stars me, Kinsey Burke. And also it has my, uh, junior co-host, Mark Lentz. Sup, though? 
So catch brand new episodes twice monthly for only three easy payments of four twenty sixty nine. That doesn't make sense. Nasty Labs only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Last month, Game Boy and GBA titles were finally added to NSO. Slim pickings for now, but there are a lot of great titles there if you've never experienced them before. I played most of them already, so I was thinking, what should I play? The one that stuck out to me was Kurukurukururin, which I will absolutely talk about on the podcast in the future. But ironically, the game I decided to spend the most time with is one I've played many times, Super Mario Bros. 3. Or shall I say Super Mario Advance 4, Super Mario Bros. 3, one of the most insane titles ever. I went immediately to the Mario Bros. subgame, which is probably the best version of it, right? It's the one with the actually good physics. But then I realized this game has something I hadn't played before, the e-reader levels. If you're not e-reader savvy, it was a device for the Game Boy Advance released in 2001 in Japan and the following year in America. You plug it into the cartridge port and it could read data imprinted on special cards Nintendo sold. They were almost like proto-amiibo in a way. In Japan, the e-reader was much more popular, especially because of its compatibility with games like Animal Crossing. Nintendo released e-reader cards for Super Mario Bros. 3, allowing you to access new power-ups and even new stages. But since the e-reader was a bigger hit in Japan, many of these cards never came over to the West. Fast forward to the Wii U days, and Nintendo released the GBA version of Super Mario Bros. 3 with all the e-reader levels unlocked on the Virtual Console, even levels on Japan-exclusive cards. Now, that version of the game is sitting on your Switch. It's not every day you get quote-unquote new Mario levels developed by Nintendo, so I was curious to see what these actually were. After going through all of them, I have to say that I'm pleasantly surprised at the quality of these stages. It almost feels like a lost Mario game or maybe even a peek into the design philosophy that would eventually lead to Mario Maker. You've got faux amiibo functionality, faux Mario Maker stages. This thing was really a preview of the Switch. You can immediately jump into these levels via the save menu inside the Super Mario Bros. 3 portion of the game. The last save file is labeled World E, and this houses all the levels. In World E, which is shaped like the e-reader logo, you access all the stages through one spot on the map. There are over 30 stages, and you can do them in any order. It keeps track of whether you beat it with Mario or Luigi, along with what secret coins you got in the level. These coins unlock the Toad Houses, and there are even giant secret e-reader coins hidden in levels that you collect to fill up a gallery inside the e-coin castle on the map. Most of the coin stuff is pretty superfluous. You're really just here for the levels. But for people who do want to 100% something, you've got a couple hundred coins to collect. The first few levels may not seem that impressive, they're just remakes of iconic stages from the original Super Mario Bros. But it's fun to see them in the GBA art style. The real fun comes with the completely original levels made for the e-reader cards. These levels aren't trying to be authentic Mario 3 style maps. They're filled with a ton of new ideas and even borrow items from other games. You can pick up turnips, you can use the cape. All of this in Super Mario Bros. 3. I didn't even know this was legal. The unpredictability of these stages is a major part of its appeal. Since there's no world structure or cohesion between the levels, you really don't know what you're going to do next. There is one that's a giant maze made out of those thin pipes in the desert from Super Mario Bros. 3. 
There's a stage where you have to jump across parabeetles in the sky, something reused heavily in the new Super Mario Brothers games. I love any and all parabeetle stages, so I'm glad another one popped up here. Some use the triangle blocks that you can run up. Others are navigated completely via the Goomba shoe. Another where most of the platforms are the musical note blocks. These are not your safe conservative designs aimed at people who are picking up a Mario game for the first time. They're for Mario hardcores, or at least people who have already cleared the game. They're not as brutally challenging as, say, some of the post-game stages in recent Mario games, but there are some that are pretty tough. Though overall, I think they are easily doable for most Mario veterans. It was a very long road before Nintendo went completely wild with Mario level designs in Mario Maker, but we can see this more freeform, unorthodox design philosophy in this game and, of course, in the new Super Mario Bros. games. These are fairly similar to the bonus levels in Super Mario World, but longer and more of a mix of various ideas. One of my favorite stages is Vegetable Volley, where you can pull up turnips and fight Charging Chucks. You have never been able to do this scenario in any other Mario game. It's surprising that it's just hidden in an e-reader stage. Another excellent one is Sky High Adventure, which takes place in what I could only describe as a giant tower made of hills. These hills have a door that takes you to a puzzle room, and then you need to solve the puzzle to progress. Many puzzles rely on the Tanuki suit, like having crush blocks with your stone form to access new areas. And any course with the cape is obviously awesome. There's a few where you need to run up the triangle blocks to gain momentum, then launch yourself off the platform to fly up to higher ones. These levels take concepts we've seen before, but actually do something new with them. I'm sure these stages have probably been replicated thousands of times in fan-made Mario Maker courses, but Nintendo knows the pacing and rhythm of a great Mario level more than anyone else. Some more fun oddities, the Bumpties Penguins from Yoshi's Island appear in a stage. Since this is the last of the Mario GBA titles, it makes sense that they would shove everything from those games into this one. It almost feels like a farewell song to the entire Mario GBA project. No, we never got an original Mario title for the hardware, but Nintendo did put a tremendous amount of effort into bringing these classic titles to a new generation and satiating hardcore Mario fans with new additions and features. Shockingly, a fairly notable Mario power-up appeared for the first time thanks to the e-reader, the blue boomerang. Mario can throw a boomerang to attack foes, and you gotta catch it on return or else it's lost. This is a power-up you can get by scanning the boomerang card, but it does appear in at least one e-reader level. I can't recommend these stages highly enough. If you're a Mario fan and you have never played them, do so now. It's kind of weird to say it's a hidden gem, since tens of millions of people have played Super Mario Bros. 3, but I bet most have not tried out these stages. NSO, in general, has a ton of awesome things Nintendo rarely puts out. We have the Mario 3 e-reader levels, Panel Dupont and Mario Super Picross on the North American apps, Star Fox 2 is on there, I love to see the Satellaview or N64 disk drive games make an appearance. But until we get the F-Zero X expansion kit, you can play these awesome Mario Bros. 3 e-reader levels instead. In January, I gave some early impressions on Fire Emblem Engage, up to Chapter 8. Well, it turns out there's a lot more chapters after that, and now that I've cleared it, I wanted to share some final thoughts on the latest Fire Emblem game from Intelligent Systems. I was pretty high on it when I last talked about it, and honestly, the game only gets better. You get access to more interesting characters, both in personality and gameplay. There are bigger mix-ups in terms of map design and the emblems, and character customization opens up a lot more, allowing you to create some fun loadouts. But no, it did not top three houses, at least for me, yet it's still an excellent entry into the Fire Emblem series and worth playing for fans and even newcomers. I think the game really started to pick up at the early pop-off moment. In Three Houses, there's a major moment in the game that completely changes the story along with your team build. 
for me, that happened after about 40 hours in three houses. But thankfully, it happens much sooner here, around the 10 or 15 hour mark. I won't spoil what it is, but it completely makes you rethink your entire team composition, along with raising the stakes of the story to a much higher degree. It's a bit surprising at first, but it makes perfect sense as it refreshes your team and makes you reevaluate your strategies. The game is quite good about keeping you on your toes in terms of gameplay. You're constantly being thrown new character after new character. Some basic, others game changers. Just when I thought my team was getting stale, or I was worried I would have the same team comp for the rest of the game, there would be a new character or emblem that I controlled that would give me more options and let me mix up my tactics. The game isn't as precise or granular as Three Houses when it comes to building your character. You probably won't be swapping back and forth between a lot of classes or mastering a bunch of different proficiencies, but the emblems do let you build characters in unique ways. You can do something completely mishmash, like giving your thief healing or magic spells with a certain emblem equipped, or you can double down on your character's abilities, like giving your sword guy access to abilities and buffs that make him even stronger. I feel that doubling down is probably the best route to take, but I'm sure a lot of people have some interesting emblem builds out there. I gave Byleth to Yunaka, letting me briefly turn her into a dancer, which means I don't just have to use her as a dodge tank the entire match. The emblem system as a whole is very well thought out and a good way to balance a lot of previous ideas like the pair-up system of Awakening or the free-form character building of Three Houses. It lets you be super powerful for a brief time, but even passively you still get access to some fun abilities and buffs. Some emblems stand out a bit more than others. Since the majority of them are lords from the past game, there's a lot of, well, I'm good with the sword type of character. I like Leaf since he gains access to a lot of different weapons, and Ike's Great Aether attack is ridiculously powerful and fun to use since you can obliterate anyone next to you. I would like to have seen a bit more variety in them though. I know in the DLC you've got Hector and Camilla and so on, but simply picking the main guy from the past games is a bit too limiting. Again, the concept of this game should have been summoning Nintendo characters. Engage with Wario, with Isabelle, with Pikachu. Make this game intelligent systems, you have the power. The way you get access to new abilities and proficiencies through emblems makes the game a bit slow at first in terms of team customization, but they do at least loosen the leash. They never take it off, but there's enough freedom there to make interesting characters. By the last third of the game, you'll likely have everyone equipped with abilities you want, but even then you don't get everything or the highest tiers of what you already have. But the game does its job in making you feel like you're always getting stronger, getting access to new weapons or abilities. No spoilers, but it takes some time to get all the emblems, and I would have liked to have gotten all of them a bit earlier. For non-emblem equipped characters, you can only attach two skills to them, not including their innate class and character abilities. Since emblem equipped characters have those learned skills, passive buffs you get by equipping the ring, and special skills when they are engaged, there's definitely a gulf between the have and the have not. But I understand intelligence systems wanting to slow you down a bit so you don't get too absurdly powerful. Those last few chapters where you do have all the rings, though, are remarkably fun since you have so many tools at your disposal, and if you get the DLC, you have even more options. Once your team is up to snuff, you fight. The combat is your typical Fire Emblem affair, but some of the newer additions like the Break System and the Engage System make this game... Man, I always want to say engaging. I gotta use a different word for this one game specifically. I love Three Houses, but I think that removing the Weapon Triangle from that game is one of its flaws. So I'm glad that they not only brought it back, but double down on it with the break system. This lets you disarm opponents you have a type advantage against, so they can't counter for that turn. This mechanic alone can make or break a turn. It's the determiner between life or death for a character. 
You can also get a Fracture Staff, which breaks opponents from afar, which is so vital in those last chapters. The Engage system, the mechanic the game is built around, is smartly integrated and it has a major impact on how you play without being totally broken. Compare this to the squads feature in Three Houses, something that you could pretty much ignore. The ebb and flow of when should I use the emblems, when should I use a special attack, thinking of who should pop it and who should save it for the boss, this all ties in well with Fire Emblem's strengths of having challenging maps that require smart thinking while also not sacrificing customization and playstyles. Disappointingly, a lot of the mission objectives are based around toppling the commander. I'd like to have seen a bit more variety in victory conditions. Last year, I played Triangle Strategy, and pretty much every map had a very distinct win condition. But even so, there are so many strong maps throughout the main campaign. I love the one in the Desert Palace, where you have to split up and flank the main throne room. Chapter 17, I assumed, was legitimately impossible, but becomes less so once you sit down and plan your attack. It's a game that definitely doesn't want you to use the same strategy over and over again. Outside of these story maps, there are paralogues based around fighting the emblems, like a map where the boss is Marth or Lin. These maps are ripped straight out of the original game. Maybe not one-to-one, but the tile set and the layout are at least incredibly similar. There are nice callbacks for Fire Emblem hardcores, and even if you're unfamiliar with many of the characters, these maps feel a lot different from the story ones. You can definitely tell, okay, this map was absolutely made on SNES hardware. Which is not a bad thing, but it is noticeable. Okay, favorite characters to use. The Protag is ridiculously strong as always. He's a sword guy. But the Divine Dragon class also gives you proficiency with martial arts, which is a bit unique for the main character. Granted, you'll probably be using the sword most of the time, though. I also love Panette, who is a goth princess berserker. Pair her up with Ike, and she's ridiculously strong, both on offense and defense. Buff up her defense so that even when she takes damage, that boosts her stats. She still has a ton of HP left. She also has fantastic victory and crit quotes. The two dagger girls, Yunaka and Meren, are incredible dodge tanks. Yunaka is especially fun since you could argue her base class is her best one, so you kind of have to build her in a unique way so she doesn't fall behind. Giving her any emblem lets her utilize both her unique thief skills and whatever else you want to use. The emblems let you briefly make her a healer, make her a dancer, make her an archer, I think she is emblematic, okay, that's another word I can't use, of why the emblem system works. Diamant is lord number two, but his main class can let him wield both axes and swords, which makes him incredibly strong and versatile. The game is just filled with fun characters to use. Ironically, this time I didn't use a dedicated healer or a dancer, because with the new break mechanic, and since a lot of magic characters can also use staves, you can create characters with more diversified roles. When it's chill time, you get to go home to your base of the Somniel. SRPGs always had the issue of what should players do when they're not fighting. Some want to just do battle after battle, but others appreciate the downtime and spending time with your characters in fun ways. I think Engage's Hub Home does its job, there's plenty of things to spark conversations with characters, and it's filled with many games that give you boosts in battles. Though it's not quite as fresh as Garrick Mach was in Three Houses. A lot of the activities feel very skippable later in the game. I think Three Houses also had that issue, but it hit much earlier here. But the Somniel is serviceable, and I like having a cool place to roam around while I plan for the next battle. I wonder if they're just going to create different variations of the hub, or we will get a more traditional JRPG type of world with towns and exploration down the line. I haven't really touched on the story yet, and that's because, well, it's not that spectacular. There's an evil dragon that wants to be reborn, and it needs the emblem rings to do so. They throw in some twists every now and then, but I feel that they don't hit emotionally. There's a lot of mumbo-jumbo where things happen because, well, I just used magic, and now the story has changed forever. 
It honestly feels like a grab bag of Fire Emblem tropes, but not used in an interesting way. Look at Three Houses, a game that balanced political intrigue, interpersonal conflict, and people suddenly turning into dragons. Here, well, you've got that last part. The characters are still likable, despite dumb things constantly happening around them, but it never quite shakes its Saturday morning cartoon vibe. I feel like they could have done something a bit more exciting with the concept. Multiverses are all the rage right now, but it oddly doesn't lean into that aspect. The emblems come from different worlds, but that element doesn't really play a major part in the story. Maybe some thought Three Houses was a bit too self-serious, melodramatic, or bittersweet, but that story connected with me way more and people are still talking about the character's motivations, who was right, who was wrong, years later. Goofy story aside, I'm very pleased overall with Fire Emblem Engage. I think it's technically my game of the year by default, but we've got a lot of months left. There's enough here to make the game feel distinct from past titles, and visually it's a clear number one. All Fire Emblem games should look like this from now on. I think the character designer Mika Picasso did a great job with the game, but if we got another artist giving their perspective on the next title, I wouldn't mind shifting away from these designs. But I want the colorful, cel-shaded look. Stick with that, please. The game also has a ton of content. I cleared it after about 50 hours, and that's without touching the online battle stuff, which I tried but wasn't really into. Maybe these new Effie titles are getting a bit long in the tooth, though? Three Houses took me 65 hours for one playthrough, Engage around 50, but the 3DS campaigns were about 25 hours each. IS could probably balance this with more remakes that are closer to the 20-hour mark, with the new titles being these larger projects that take months to beat. I think any FE fan would enjoy this game, and if you're a newcomer who is curious about the franchise, it's a good way to get into it. I could seriously play a new Fire Emblem game every year, but it's okay, IS. You can take a break. I do think we would likely get a remake before the Switch wraps up. Fire Emblem is the franchise that benefits most from remakes, in my mind, since so many were Japan-only, and they released a dozen games before the franchise went mainstream. So they've got decades of remakes ready to go. That's it for games, now for the news. Pokemon has returned, possibly with a vengeance. Although not really, since the last Pokemon Presents was a bit underwhelming. The bad thing about having these yearly announcements is that, hey, sometimes you just don't have a whole lot but I went into the presents with low expectations. I presumed DLC would be coming, and it did. Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, The Hidden Treasures of Area Zero is coming to Switch later this year. There are two parts, the Teal Mask and the Indigo Disc. I assume they will be structured similarly to the Sword and Shield DLC. You'll travel to a new area and catch some Pokemon. The first one has you visiting the land of Kitakami on a school trip. This is a very Japanese-inspired place, which is 100% up my alley. They showed the protag visiting a traditional Japanese summer festival. You've got Kakigori, you've got the water balloon yo-yos, aka yo-yo suri, and of course you've got Pokemon. There are three similar-looking new mons, the dog Okidogi, the monkey Monkey Dory, and the pheasant Fezendipity, plus the mask-wearing Ogre Pond. This is 100% based on the legend of Momotaro, a famous Japanese fairy tale where a hero teams up with a dog, pheasant, and monkey to fight ogres. I guess you are the peach boy in this scenario. In the story, the ogres live on the island called Onigashima, so I wonder if we will travel to the Pokemon version of it, or if Kitakami is indeed supposed to be that. This is the DLC I'm most excited about as a return to a Japanese-inspired Pokemon is something I've always wanted. I mean, I did get it with Arceus, but I want more. For a second, though, I thought, is this another Legends game? 
But if they do make another one of those, I hope they take their time. The second DLC area takes place in a high-tech facility in the ocean. It seems to be very battle-focused and features the Pokemon Terrapagos, a big turtle that resembles the Terra Crystals and has all the type logos on it. Hmm, that seems important. The Sword and Shield DLC function more as extra side stories, but here it looks like it might tie in more with the mysteries of the original game. There are definitely a lot of hints towards future content, so I'm interested to see on how it expands upon the lore of Paldea. No gameplay was shown, so I can't really comment on that, but despite its many flaws, I did enjoy SV, so I'll get the DLC. But if you don't want to pay for DLC, Game Freak did add two new Pokemon, Walking Wake and Iron Leaves, two new Paradox Mons based on Suicune and Virizion. Is that how you say it? These were also hinted in the main game, but they look quite different from the teaser art. It's cool that they are just giving these away for free, but man, getting into these raids is just so annoying. The raid system is much improved from Sword and Shield, but the online issues have not been improved. The other big game, and by game, I'm using heavy air quotes here, is Pokemon Sleep. Announced all the way back in 2019, we are nothing about it until now. It's a sleep tracker app with a Pokemon theme. You can collect, quote, rare in-game sleep styles based on your sleeping patterns. So it leans more into the collecting aspect. You aren't going to be battling Gengar trying to eat your dreams, which would be awesome. I've never tried any of these sleep apps, but I might download this one and just try it once before forgetting about it forever. It's always fun to see Pokemon try these weird lifestyle experiments. In Japan, there's Mon Poke, which is a special brand solely dedicated to selling baby goods. I'm waiting for the authentic Rotom-themed electronics, like a Rotom lawnmower and microwave. Other stuff, there's a Netflix stop-motion animation called Pokemon Concierge coming soonish. Pokemon has been pretty aggressive in creating new animated programs outside their traditional show for a while now. I think since the show has been running for decades, people have either fallen off or have no interest in jumping in. So these brand new shows give people an easier entry point. The other announcement that caught my eye was Pokemon TCG Classic, which is this austere-looking pre-made Pokemon TCG deck bundle. It comes in this black box with uniquely crafted damage counters, black card sleeves, and three decks based on the original base set. It doesn't seem like it will only be basic cards, though, since special Ho-Ho and Lugia cards are among those included. Can't lie, I want this. It's 100% aimed at people nostalgic for Pokemon cards, but it is 35,000 yen, or about 300 US dollars. Right now in Japan, there is a lottery for it, so you have a chance to buy it at the Pokemon Center. So not only is it expensive, it will be incredibly rare. Scalpers were licking their crusty lips at this announcement. This is one of the most I-don't-need-it items ever, but I do want it. Will I ever use it? Probably not. But wouldn't it be fun to own? One thing that did not show up was a new mystery dungeon game. A few days before Pokemon Day, the official website for the event seemed to have Spike Chunsoft, the developers of Mystery Dungeon, in the copyright section. However, nothing from them was shown. We got a remake on Switch, but no new title yet, despite the DS and 3DS having some new Mystery Dungeon games. There's not really a Pokemon spinoff I'm yearning for. We got Snap, which was amazing, and I'd love to see Conquest return, despite that being pretty unlikely. Detective Pikachu 2 was never cancelled, so it has to come out within the Switch's lifespan, right? If it wasn't announced during Pokemon Day, it's not coming out this year, so I wonder what the status of that project is. Not exactly the greatest Pokemon presents, but you can't hit a home run every year. Once again, no real mention of actually improving the game's performance. There was a patch recently, and apparently it broke a couple of things and may corrupt your save data if you connect to Pokemon Go. 
I can forgive some bugs and bad frame rate, but anything that messes with your save is unacceptable. I don't think people will ever vote with their wallet when it comes to Pokemon, so I'm just worried these performance issues are going to be a mainstay from here on out. New game alerts. Bandai Namco announced a new Dragon Ball Z Budokai Tenkaichi game is coming. It's been over 15 years since the last one, but there's been a Dragon Ball renaissance these past few years, so reviving the franchise makes a lot of sense. It's less hardcore and technical than Fighter Z, and more straightforward than Xenoverse. If you've never played it, it's basically just an arena fighter with Dragon Ball characters. It was very novel for its time. Three had maybe 100 different playable characters in total, but they counted stuff like Super Saiyan 2 and Super Saiyan 3 Goku as different characters. But there were some fun deep dives, like characters from the original Dragon Ball, such as Mercenary Tao, and even Arale from Dr. Slump. If they don't put Arale in the main game, they've already lost me. No, DLC doesn't count. She needs to be on the base roster. The appeal of this game is that it does a great job simulating the actual fights you see in the anime within a 3D space, but it's so easy that anyone can pick up and play. The series isn't well known for its balance, and I kind of hope they continue with that here. I want some absolutely garbage characters that are no good at all, and a few that are stupidly broken. That's the Budokai Tenkaichi spirit. No platforms yet, but I'm guessing some Nintendo version will happen eventually. Now for this week in Tokyo. Pokemon card artist Mitsuhiro Arita is having an exhibit in Shibuya showcasing some of his card art from the Sun and Moon card series. Arita is a very prolific artist, but I assume most Nintendo fans know him from his Pokemon art. He drew THE Pokemon card. That's right, base set Charizard. I think drawing Pokemon cards is probably a sweet gig. Not sure about the pay, but they keep making new Pokemon, new cards, so you've always got a steady job forever. Other news, I wrote an article for a time extension about the Degashia Game Museum in Tokyo, so please check that out. It's about electronic and pre-electronic Japanese arcade games, what people played before video games. I'll definitely cover it on the podcast in the future, but you can see some pics in my article and on Twitter. The podcast app will have some new info though. You gotta save some exclusive content, right? Okay, let's wrap up. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It really helps with visibility. The podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on March 26th. See you next time. Matane! Matane!